Simone Weil was a highly educated, highly intellectual French philosopher and Christian. She died at age 34 in 1943, but before she passed away, she said some pretty profound things. And among them is her feeling regarding intellectual pride. She said, the intelligent man who is proud of his intelligence is like the condemned man who is proud of his large jail cell. (laughs) I think in that short statement, Simone Weil captured very nicely the idea that Paul is expressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. When intelligence weds pride, it destroys the effectiveness of intelligence. It's like a parasite that's attached itself to an organism and sucks the life right out of it. Pride was the original sin, both of Satan, or Lucifer, and of Adam. And both of those two were creatures of very high intellect. Adam, in his originally created state, was not stained by sin. His intellect would arguably have been, Adam and Eve too, their intellects would have arguably been higher than any of the rest of us because all of our intellects have been stained by sin. So they were extremely smart. It's not intelligence that they needed. It was a little bit of humility. Pride sucked the very life out of Satan or Lucifer. It sucked the very life out of Adam, and it'll suck the very life out of you and me if we let it. It's like a parasite. Pride hardens the mind. Speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in Daniel chapter 5, it says this, But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne. And his glory was taken away. Pride hardens the mind. Pride also inhibits spiritual progress. Proverbs chapter 26 verse 12 reads this way. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Pride inhibits spiritual progress. Pride also hinders one from coming to God. And this is pretty germane to our passage here this morning. Pride inhibits or hinders one from coming to God. Psalm 10.4 The wicked in their pride of countenance do not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And finally, pride leads to utter ruin. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The scriptures spend more time condemning the sin of pride than any other sin. And it's not even close. Perhaps because pride and or arrogance, if you prefer that term, is the root cause of most other sins. So the scriptures nip it in the bud right in the beginning. That's the sin that we need to watch for is pride. It would amuse me if it weren't so tragic. How many prideful people condemn the sins of others, vociferously, enthusiastically condemn the sins of others, all the while committing one of the most destructive sins themselves. In pride, they condemn someone else. It doesn't make sense. It's almost oxymoronic. All sin violates God's holiness. That's true. But some sins carry with them a tendency towards self-destruction, or a greater tendency, rather, towards self-destruction. 
And arrogance or pride is at the top of that list. Pride will bring you down. It'll bring us all down. Pride was a central factor in the Corinthian culture. We've talked a lot about that so far in our introductory matters. Pride was a problem in the city of Corinth. And we've also seen that part of the Corinthian problem with regard to the church was they were allowing the culture to influence them negatively in a much more powerful way than they were influencing the culture. So pride is seeping in through the walls. It's a serious problem. And Paul knew the destructive nature of pride, so he comes down on it hard in this letter. God's attitude toward prideful human intelligence is pretty simply summarized. He's not impressed with it. Not at all. Nor should he be. Because God is omniscient. Now that's a $100 theological word that means God knows everything that's knowable. But that's not all, as they say on the commercials. Not only does he not only know everything that's knowable, he's always known it. Now that's what almost can freak you out if you stop and think about it for a while. He's never learned anything. Now if you came to me and said, you've never learned anything in your life, I probably would take that as an insult, but, but since I'm such a humble person. <laughs> no, I don't say that. I've learned a few things, even though, even though it, it takes a while sometimes. But we learn things and we're happy with that. I love learning all different kinds of subjects. And so do you, I know that. But God's never learned anything. You know why? Because he didn't ever have to learn anything. He always knew everything. Everything that's knowable, he's always known. That's what we mean by omniscience, to use a theological word. And it's not bad to use theological words. They communicate omniscience. Certainly he knows everything that has happened. He knows everything that's going to happen also. But he also knows potentialities. He knows everything that could have happened. That's a discussion I'd like to have with Jesus someday if, you know, we, I don't know if you wait in line in heaven to get to talk to him or how, how all that works. Wouldn't you love to have a conversation someday with what would have happened if I would have done that? And maybe Jesus says, you don't want to know what would have happened. <laughs> so <laughs> just be glad you didn't do that and move on. I don't know. But God knows everything, the actual and the possible. So he knows all that's knowable. He's always known it. All knowledge with God is simultaneous. And he knows the actual and the possible. Can you see why he might not be quite so impressed with our human intelligence? Now, we might get all high and mighty about it. We might not say it because we're too kind, but we might think, well, I'm a lot smarter than he is, or I'm a lot smarter than she is. And God says, sit down and shut up because I'm a whole lot smarter than all of you put together. Nobody needs to be bragging about anything here. Nobody needs to be bragging about anything, particularly a high intellect. That's a summary message of what's going on in, in this passage today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Nobody has any basis for being really proud about any intellect or any learning endeavor because God is omniscient. And if we're going to boast about anything... It doesn't need to be about us, it needs to be about God. The overlaying message is pride is destructive. If it's destructive to individuals, doesn't it make sense? It'll be destructive to a church as well. I have to bring this up because when we started the introduction to this paragraph, 
I took great pains to argue against this new movement in Christianity, this anti-intellectualism in Christianity, where we try to make ourselves look like the, the most humbling, bumbling hayseeds there possibly are, there possibly could be, and make a point of acting like we have no basis for believing in the existence of God or no basis for our faith. There's no basis for any kind of intellectualism in Christianity. That's not the argument at all. Most of my ministry is built upon teaching. I want to teach you the Word of God so that you can learn something and so that you can love God more as a result. I'm not against the intellect, believe me. And I'm not against us learning everything that we can possibly learn about God. I hope you're with me on that. It's been the thrust of my ministry since the day it began, since the day the Lord graciously started it. I feel like my responsibility, at least my primary responsibility, certainly not my only one, but my primary responsibility is to take the Word of God and teach it to you. I deeply want you to get it. Having said that, and having said this is one of the primary thrusts of my life, is teaching the Word of God both to you and then occasionally to places around the world. I'll be in England later on this month teaching to some pastors there. I'm looking very much forward to that. India next year, Nigeria next year perhaps, maybe even England again next year. I really love teaching the Word of God because I think it's so important. But what I don't want as a result is for us to become prideful or arrogant about what we know about God's Word. You see, that would be the wrong application. The more we know of God's Word, the more that we learn about God's Word, the less arrogant we should be and the more humble that we should be. Way back, this was back in the early 80s before I was in ministry, I worked at a place where we stopped at about 7 o'clock at night. Well, I had a Bible study I wanted to attend at 8 o'clock at night. So I would usually scoot out very quickly. And, and the guy that I worked for is a very dear friend of mine, but, but at the time he didn't really appreciate, he didn't share my enthusiasm for Bible studies, put it that way. And so he would try to do everything he could to keep me from going to those Bible studies. Astros tickets, Monday night football, you know, that's a big thing, especially when it was here in Houston back with the Oilers. Anything he could do to get me from going to the Bible study in, that, in the evening. And one day he just got really frustrated when I was headed out the office as quick as I could get to so I could be to church on time. And he said, uh, when are you going to be finished studying that book anyway? <laughs> You've been doing it for several years now. When are you going to finish? And I said, never. I don't think I'll ever finish. We don't know who knows more of the Word of God than anybody who's ever lived. But some people like to make an argument for Paul. I mean, certainly he was way up there. He was a very educated man, both in a classical education, but also a religious education. And then he was taught by Jesus himself, so can't complain about his teachers. You know, even at the end of Paul's life, you know what he asks for? He asks for a coat, you know, some practical things. He asks for his Bible. He asks for the parchments. I want to study. He was studying up to the very last moment. But he wasn't prideful about what he learned. See, learning the Word of God is a, should be a central factor in your life. But the application should be to love God more every day. And instead of our pride level going up, pride level should go down and humility should go up. So I don't want to ever be a church that falls into the Corinthian problem. Now their problem wasn't knowing too much of the Word of God. It was knowing too much of some other things and being prideful about it. But I don't want to have this, this 
problem of pride come in the back door, and it can so subtly do that if we're not careful. And the way it happens is, well, I know a whole lot more than they do. Well, good for you. I'm glad you do. But just you verbalizing it, just said maybe you're not as humble as you ought to be. We all fall susceptible to this. I don't know if you know this. But I'll tell you something if you don't. The whole Bible church movement gets a bad rap sometimes. Not, not just our church. I'm talking about everybody gets a bad rap for being intellectually arrogant about what we know. And we ought not to be. There's some disconnect there if that happens. If you can tell, tell someone everything there is to know when we finish this study, or a lot, of, a lot of what there is to know about 1 Corinthians, and it's a source of pride for you, you haven't gotten the message of 1 Corinthians. He's arguing against pride here. He's not arguing against learning, but he's arguing against pride. So I wanted to be careful here this morning that we don't become prideful of the fact that we know a lot about pride. Back to our point, God's not impressed with human intellect because he's omniscient. We might be impressed with a person of high IQ, but God is not impressed at all. He's understandably very unimpressed. When the intellectuals of Paul's day, or the intellectual elite of our day, either one, attempt to use their intellect to argue that God does not exist, God laughs at them. God doesn't get upset with them. He doesn't have to get upset with them any more than he would get upset with us if we shake our fist at God. Like we're going to hurt him. He's omnipotent. means he can do anything that's intrinsically possible to do. We can't hurt him. He laughs at stuff like that. He laughs at this intellectual arrogance because he's omniscient. I do have to do it one more time. I want to stress before we leave this section. Nowhere in this passage, nowhere in his letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, is Paul arguing against human intellect, human intelligence, or education. He's not arguing against that at all. He himself possessed a serious intellect, and he himself was a highly educated person, both classically and religiously. The thing about Paul is, and the thing I think that the reason God chose him to write this letter, maybe instead of, say, Peter. Peter was probably just as mature as Paul. He loved the Lord deeply and intensely. But why would he send Paul to Corinth instead of Peter. I think the reason was Paul was uniquely prepared to go to Corinth and go to Athens because of this classical background that he had. Paul is not arguing against the classical background. He understood the arguments of the philosophers. And we need more Christians who understand the arguments of the philosophers. Oh boy, do we. We need them in every college in the United States. Fortunately, there are a couple around here that now have a professor that understands the arguments of the philosophers, and like the Apostle Paul, the other Paul that I know also, who Professor Paul, also recognizes that the arguments of the philosophers come up short for handling life's real problems. Paul understood the arguments of the philosophers. That's a key. That's why he can argue against them. It rings hollow if you're going to say Plato was an idiot. In fact, don't ever say Plato was an idiot. You would show your own ignorance if you do that. He was a highly intelligent person. Now, I think most of his arguments came way short. But he's not an idiot. Don't ever say something like Descartes was an idiot or Spinoza was an idiot. That just shows somebody you haven't ever read them. Oh, they were highly intellectual. Now, their application came way short. Most of them. Some that I mentioned had some decent application. 
Paul understood what he was arguing against. He was uniquely qualified to do that. The difference between the Athenian philosophers and the Corinthian philosophers and the Apostle Paul was they were arrogant and Paul was humble. That's the difference. And that's what Paul has been, through the Holy Spirit, bringing out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. That's where we'll end up today. He did not allow his high intellect or his education to become a source of pride. And that's what I would motivate us to as well. Get all the education you can get within reason. Get all the education you can, your mom and dad can afford <laughs> within reason. Biblically, spend the rest of your life learning the Word of God. Just don't let it become a source of pride. Because if you do, you lost, you lost out. You didn't learn what it was you were supposed to learn. Paul would say, yes, there is value in the study of philosophy or the philosophers, but that value does not approach what Paul calls in this passage the wisdom of God. So he talks about the wisdom of this age or the wisdom of man, and he contrasts it with the wisdom of God. Sophia is the same term used both times. Sophia does mean wisdom, but Paul is using sometimes wisdom in a negative sense, sometimes in a positive sense, depending on whose wisdom it is. If it's the wisdom that comes from God or God's wisdom, then it's a good thing. If it's the wisdom of the age, he's arguing against it. There is value in education in general, but that value does not approach the value of the wisdom of God. That's his message. The final paragraph of the first chapter opens by reminding the church of their humble beginnings. If they're to think rationally, they would be forced to come to the conclusion that as a church, they really had nothing to brag about, at least not before God. They were not saved because of their own pride. They were saved not because of their own intellectual prowess. They were saved because they humbled themselves and trusted God to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In summary form, that's what Paul is calling wisdom. The concept that we were saved by the death of Christ and not our own goodness, not our own intellect, not our own education. Look at verses 26 through 31 with me as we close out this paragraph, this chapter 2. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not. That he might nullify the things that are. That no man should boast before God. In verse 30, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we're going to brag about anything, it ought to be about my Lord. I'll be happy to brag about him. All day long, I'll brag about Jesus Christ. Or maybe I'll brag about what Jesus Christ did for me. But none of us ought to be bragging about ourselves. In the first place, it's most unlovely. People don't like to be around other arrogant people. 
They don't mind being around themselves. They don't mind their own arrogance, but they hate being around other arrogant people. It's not lovely. No one loves pride. No one loves arrogance. We avoid those people as much as we can. The idea of one's calling has come up several times in chapter 1, so I want to mention this now. In verse 2, Paul used the term saints by calling. We were set apart by calling. In verse 9, God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship. Verse 24, but to those who are called. And now Paul says, consider your calling. In verse 21, Paul wrote these words, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In this chapter, in this context, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the believer's calling is closely related in some way to their humbly receiving the message of the cross and believing. It's the same category of person. The person who he is mentioning here has trusted Christ is the same person who has been called. So there's some relationship between the two. Historically, the idea of this calling has caused great and I think unnecessary division in the body of Christ. Since the time of the Reformation on, we've been arguing about this. Certainly, there's a divine side to the equation of our calling. Call that divine election. Again, another $100 theological word, but it's not a bad word. The Bible speaks of our election, our calling. So there's a divine side to it, and then there's a human side to it. From the human side, it's pretty easy. Our responsibility in this whole transaction is faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. I know some people get really bent out of shape about the whole idea of election and it splits churches. I've known of it to split families. It's totally unnecessary. There is a divine side to that equation and a human side. Now, I'm not trying to solve 500 years worth of Reformation problems in 10 minutes. I'm not trying to do that. That would be prideful. I'm not doing that. But I'm trying to bring it down to a fairly basic level. There's a divine side to this equation of salvation and there's a human side. The only one we can do anything about is the human side. And the only thing from the human side that we have as our responsibility is to place our faith and our faith alone in Jesus Christ. So a lot of the arguing needs really could be set aside if we understood from the human side, it's faith. That's my responsibility. When I understand, or when I understood in the past, as a seven-year-old, fairly young, that I was a sinner and needed a Savior. Now, granted, I understood that at a seven-year-old level, but I understood that I needed a Savior. And my little Sunday school teacher, I don't remember her name. I look forward to meeting her in heaven. The impact that she's had in my life, she probably has no idea about. I, I would imagine she's probably with the Lord now. I don't know. Isn't that going to be neat one of these days when we meet those Sunday school teachers that we might remember their face, we might remember one nice thing they did, not one nice thing or two, and somebody's going to point it out to us. We'll get to heaven and say, you know what? She's the one that gave you the gospel. He's the one that led you to Christ. You don't even remember him. And you'll say, thank you so much. I appreciate it so much. A few years ago, we were in Colorado for a church camp. Many of you were there. And on the way back, uh, my family went and visited some people that we knew. And the man was a friend of my father's who had this ranch right outside of uh, Westcliff, Colorado. 
not too far from the camp that we attend, Hermit Base. His name's Ken Carey. Ken Carey was an engineer. He knew my father back in the late 50s, early 60s. And Ken Carey knew my father at the time wasn't a believer. And he challenged him. Actually, what he used, I found out later, was Pascal's wager. He said, Bill, what have you got to lose? You're being stubborn here. What have you got to lose by accepting what I'm saying? Well, Dad accepted Christ as a result of that. So anyway, we went and visited Mr. Carey. Had a beautiful place, a couple hundred acres, right there in the mountains, just beautiful. But I asked Mr. Carey if he could come outside and talk to me for a little bit. And he said, sure, I'd be happy to talk to you. And he knew what we had done, what, what we, why we were there, the church, the various ministries, and so forth. And I said, I'd just like to, I'd like to talk to you for a minute about a conversation you had with my dad a long time ago. He said, okay. I said, do you remember talking to my dad about Jesus Christ? He said, I sure do. I said, you know, he trusted Jesus Christ as a result of that. He said, I sure do. He said, you know, the rest of the family also trusted Jesus Christ as a result of your, your faithfully giving him the gospel. He said, yeah, I, I do remember that. I said, and you know, I've been able to give the gospel to thousands, tens of thousands of people all over the world. Teach, literally, now tens of thousands of pastors all over the world because of your faithfulness back then. He said, well, thanks for telling me that. You know what, I know a lot of you teach in the Sunday school upstairs. And sometimes you think it's rewarding. Sometimes you may think it's not rewarding. Believe me. You have no idea the impact you're making with these kids. It's incredible. Same way with, with mothers with their children. I know there's rough days. You know, when, when the little rugrats might give you a little hard time. I got a grandson that never quits. Never quits moving. Ever. Never. <laughs> Even when he sleeps, he's still moving. <laughs> but you know what? The time you spend with those little kids is worth every, every nanosecond. Molding them. Teaching them the Word of God from a very young age. Parents. It's a wonderful calling. But back to the issue of election. We have one responsibility, and that is to trust Christ. We recognize that we need a Savior, and we trust Christ. That's the human side of this equation. Now, there is a divine side to the equation. And the divine side is what gets everybody bent out of shape. With respect to the divine side, why did God call certain people and not call other people? You know, the Bible never explicitly says. Do you know that? It's silent on that issue. Now, we can logically try to come up with some conclusions. I think you could look at the fact that the only people in heaven are the ones that have trusted Christ, and you might could draw some conclusions about what condition God had for choosing us. One conclusion I hope you don't ever draw is that God had no condition for choosing us. I think the term unconditional election, as some theologians use, I think that's an unfortunate term. Because they know what they're talking about, but it doesn't communicate well what they're speaking about. To me, if someone said that, that, that our election on God, from God's standpoint was unconditional, I would think that there was no condition. But unconditional doesn't mean no condition with God. It just means that the condition is not stated in Scripture. So God never explicitly states what caused him to call. But he does explicitly state how you can be called, and that's trust Christ. So you settle it right now. If you're concerned with it, the human side is to trust Christ. One thing I can say is that the God of the Bible would not be arbitrary. What I mean by that is God didn't in eternity past get up there and say, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. You're going to heaven, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. Okay, finish with that. Are you kidding me? That's the way some people present it, that it's totally arbitrary. There's no condition whatsoever. 
You see, to say that the Bible doesn't say what the condition was is not the same as saying there was no condition. God doesn't do anything in an arbitrary way. Anything. In His creation, everything is planned, is organized. Why do we think that He would just randomly choose who would come to Him and who would not? No, there's, there's something there. But we should never say that it was without condition. No, never. To say that the Bible never says what caused God to elect some should not be distorted into a concept that there was no condition or that the choice was arbitrary. Watch. I know people have emotions run high about this, especially the word arbitrary. And if you are in the, and I know we have many here today, but if you're, if you're in a more seriously Calvinistic camp, I wouldn't say hyper-Calvinistic, but, but strong Calvinistic camp, You'd be very offended by that word arbitrary. Well, don't be. I mean, that's, I'm just using it the way the Webster's uses it. Arbitrary means there's no condition. By definition, if there's no condition, it's arbitrary. And I'm telling you right now, that's not the God of the Bible. I will stand here and tell you that's not the God of the Bible. Paul has used this word calling. We shouldn't be afraid of it. We should just understand that it's a reality. We're saints by calling. God is faithful. That's verse 2. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship. Verse 24, but to those who were called. And now consider your calling. In verse 26, Paul lists a group of people and gives us their status at the time of their salvation. Not many wise men, he says, were called. This category includes philosophers, rabbis, and debaters. Not many wise men. Not many mighty men. This, the term could also mean influential. It's dunatos. It could also mean powerful in terms of like muscular strength, but more likely influential, powerful in the sense of mighty in the political arena or those who carry a lot of clout in social situations. Not many of those in the church at Corinth. Not many noble. Noble here in this text is people who are well-born, or members of the privileged class. All Paul's doing is saying, look around you in your church. There are not many philosophers in here. It doesn't mean there were no philosophers. But he's just saying, there's not many philosophers in here. Not a whole lot of social climbers. Not a lot of political figures that we have in here this morning, he might say. Your origins were humble. And that was good enough to get you into the body of Christ. Why do you want to get in with humility and then grow with pride? It doesn't work that way. All Paul says, go back to your roots. You became a member of the body of Christ through humility. What makes you think that you're going to grow because of pride? Now again, back to the Corinthian situation. There was a lot of pride in the Corinthian culture. That pride was creeping into the church. And it was infecting the church. And it was endangering the church. Paul is concerned with the destruction of the church at Corinth. So what he's telling them in verse 26, Consider your calling. There were not many wise according to the flesh. It's not talking about biblical wisdom. Not many mighty, not many noble. All he's saying is, don't let the Corinthian culture ruin your spiritual growth. You started off with humility. And it worked pretty well for your salvation, didn't it? So why do you think now if you're going to grow, you have to use pride to do so? 
Look at verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Now again, the wise are the wise according to the flesh. This is Paul's first use of the term flesh. It won't be his last. He develops it as a technical term later on for the old sin nature. But here he's probably just using it as humanly speaking. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. God's plan is humility. This rubbed the Corinthians wrong. And I've got to tell you, I think it rubs our culture wrong as well. Because in very few books, novels, very few movies, very few plays, is humility regarded as a virtue to be emulated. Not today. Arrogance is. How many superheroes do you have out there that are really, really humble? Not very many. You might can think of one or two, but not very many. Superheroes I like weren't, weren't necessarily humble. Jack Bauer, who's forever gone, on 24, one of the most humble guy on the planet. James Bond's not humble. I'll guarantee you that for sure. Just by the way, he says his name, Bond. <laughs> Can't you just say Bond? My name's Bond. My name's James Bond. See, we don't, we don't celebrate humility. It's counterintuitive for our culture. That's why we have to teach our children humility. That's why Paul's teaching us humility in this passage. Because it was counterintuitive in the Corinthian culture, and it's counterintuitive to us. As he closes this paragraph, he's talking about humility. The people that the Corinthians admired were prideful people. Paul is stepping in and saying, watch who you're hanging out with. Watch who you value. Watch who you want to emulate. And be careful. The guy that used to be the coach of the Houston Oilers, then for a long time was the coach of the Tennessee Titans, a guy named Jeff Fisher. I don't know if Jeff Fisher's a believer or not, but I do know he's a wise man. He's a good football coach, too. Very wise man. And I remember when he came to the Houston Oilers, he wanted to clean up the prideful culture of the Houston Oilers. Now, a lot of the radio talk shows ridiculed him for that. What business of it is his, what, you know, what somebody does in the end zone. But he knew that pride was going to hurt his football team, ultimately. And he looked around and he saw that the best football teams out there were actually had some more humble players on them. Sometimes in sports, the people who have the least ability seem to be the most prideful. And he saw that with the Oilers when he took over. And I'll never forget this radio interview that he did. He said, well, the first thing I taught my players when I came to Houston was, as soon as you score a touchdown, why don't you just hand the ball back to the referee? As if it's not the first touchdown you ever, ever scored, nor do you intend it to be the last touchdown you ever scored. Now, some of your Oilers fans remember that. He got a lot of flack for that. But it makes sense because he knew the destructive nature of it. I watch kids watching professional sports, and they've knocked a lot of it out of college sports. But I've watched them watch these players. And they see a receiver, and I was a receiver, so I mean, I, I like the position, but they see a receiver catch the ball, go into the end zone, and then slam it down and do some sort of dance that would throw my back out, you know, <laughs> as if it was all them. Well, wait a minute, last time I looked, there was five linemen that had to block for the quarterback who probably just got his bell 
wrong by throwing you the ball. The other receivers had to run perfect routes in order to make sure that you're open, you get to catch the ball, and you're going to have all the glory for yourself. That's pride, and that's our culture today. So if you understand that, you'll understand the Corinthian culture. And all Paul is saying is that's destructive. That's not teamwork. That's destructive. Don't let it into the church. All of us have a different role to play in the body of Christ. We have people who usher. We have people who develop websites. We have people who do publishing. We have people that bring beautiful flowers. We have people that play music and lead music. We have all kinds of people. We have people who teach. All the parts of the body are important. Nobody needs to be prideful. That's all he's saying here. Remember your humble origins and keep that up. With a sense of divine irony in verse 27, God has chosen to amplify the humble. Those who are not of noble birth. Those who are not frequently seen on the social pages of the Houston Chronicle. Those who are not politically connected. Those who are not the head of a philosophy department. God has chosen to amplify the humble over that category of people. That doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with being of noble birth. That's not Paul's point. Don't take it that way. But he's saying he's kind of reversing the terms. The the culture seems to think this is what we should be shooting for. God is saying, that's all nice and fine and dandy, but don't get your eyes on them. Humble yourselves. Keep your eyes on me. God's making a point. The point is, I'm not impressed with the standards of the world. Now watch, if we're God's children and he's not impressed with the standards of the world, what does it follow? We ought not to be impressed with the standards of the world either. The standards of God, yes. The standards of the world, no. If you're going to be impressed, be impressed with the right thing. Not with social climbers, not with people who are politically connected, not with people who are part of the intellectual elite. God says, I have my own standard And I'm going to amplify humility and destroy arrogance. God says, pick a side. You pick the humble side, and I'm going to bless you. You can pick the arrogant side, and I'm going to destroy you. It shouldn't be a hard choice to make. No one, no matter who they are, has any reason to be prideful, arrogant, or express that arrogance before God. No one. God is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Let him do the exalting. We need to keep our mouths shut and let God exalt us. Verse 28 again, In the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. He's turned the tables. And the result is that no man should boast before God. Then in verse 30, We see a restatement of the principle that's run throughout the whole paragraph. And we close with this. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Through our own wisdom and energy, we will never be able to apprehend God. Our salvation is the work of God. It's by God's doing that we're in Christ. Not by our own goodness. Not by our own works. Not by our own service. It's by God's doing that we're in Christ. 
The term in Jesus Christ or in Christ is a favorite Pauline term, meaning that we're in the body of Christ or we're saved. Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Messiah, who is foolishness to the intellectual elite, is wisdom to us. Paul then introduces in this verse three highly theological terms. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. These three terms are representative of the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. Righteousness, in this context, is not experiential, but it's positional. This is imputed righteousness. The righteousness that God gives each one of us at the moment of faith. Another Pauline term for that is justification. We're justified before God. Sanctification. Again, in this context, Paul's using the term sanctification in its positional sense, not in its experiential sense. We've been set apart positionally in Christ. And this is where we get the term saint. You're a saint, I'm a saint. We've all been sainted, but not by some ecclesiastical body, but we've been sainted by Jesus Christ. And finally, redemption. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, he has redeemed each one of us. He's purchased us out from the position of sin that we were in. Purchased us out from the position that we were born into as slaves to sin and set us free. That's redemption. All three of these terms are positional in nature as Paul is using them here. He's talking about the Corinthian salvation. Remember going back to the first verse. Not many mighty, not many wise, not many noble. He's talking about our calling, our salvation. And what he's concluding is that he did it. We are positionally in him. And this position cannot be undone. It's the work of God through Jesus Christ. Not through human wisdom, not through philosophy, and not through human energy. But by God through Jesus Christ. Finally, this last short verse in verse 31, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is a quotation from Jeremiah 9. The larger context reads this way. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, says the Lord. If you want to boast, you boast in Jesus Christ. He's worth boasting about. He's the one that did all the work. Who are we to try to steal one ounce of his glory? He hung on the cross for us. I didn't, and you, I didn't for you, and you didn't for me. He's the one that did it. There's no room for arrogance or pride in the Christian life. It's unlovely, it's sinful, and should be confessed. It's a human tendency. We all have a tendency toward pride, I think, but we should leave it, and we should confess it and move away from it. So Paul is echoing Jeremiah's message as he finishes this incredible chapter. If there's anything or anyone that we have the right to brag about, it's not us. It's our Lord. As we close the paragraph, we should remember again that there's nothing wrong with intellect or education. Please don't take anything that's been said to indicate that. Verses 18 through 21, do not argue for anti-intellectualism in Christianity. 
And that's very popular today, but it's very wrong. That's not what these verses argue against. But these verses are arguing against wisdom that comes from the world. These verses are arguing against wisdom, intellect, education being wedded with pride. Because that is destructive. It's a wonderful thing to learn. It's a wonderful thing to have an intellect. Let's not let that wonderful thing that should be a source of blessing become a source of destruction. Let's avoid the peril of pride. 